I'd like to invite you to turn to page 13 in your Sanctuary Bible. We're reading from Genesis 16 today. The entire chapter is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. I'd like to give you a few words of introduction before we begin. Just one topic of introduction, and it has to do with naming things in the Old Testament. When you give something a name in the Old Testament, it means something particular. And so, um, for example, God gave Adam the prerogative to name all the animals. And that was a sign of his priority or his superiority over the animals. He named them and he, he called them he said the, long with, the one with the long neck must be a giraffe. So that's you know, we get this idea. That, and so when you name something, you kind of have um, some mastery over it. And it's the same thing is true when parents name their children. A parent names a child and it kind of, in some cultures especially, it sets the course of that child's life, doesn't it? Also, when an explorer or somebody new to a land names a feature of the land or names the land, it asserts their ownership over that land. And so we see that not only in the ancient Near East, but even in modern times. And, uh, so, uh, for example, when people find a well and they name the well, or they find a valley and they name the valley. So when people name something in the Old Testament, is that naming is designed to advertise that the namer has priority in that instance over the thing that is named. And so all I'm going to ask you to do is hold on to that idea, because we're going to come back to it. That's, that's it for the introduction. Hold on to that idea of naming in the Old Testament. But let's go ahead with our reading now. Genesis 16, the whole chapter. And this is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And you remember that um, Abram and Sarai had not yet been renamed by God to Abraham and Sarah. And they are in a difficult position. They followed God's uh, leading to Canaan, although they took a detour to Egypt and came back. But yet, uh, they were un, as of yet childless, and they were quite old. And so they also had this promise from God that they would have many descendants. And so they were tr- really scratching their heads about how God was going to make this come about. And so in one sense, they were kind of doubting God's uh, covenant with them, doubting God's promise to them. They were impatient on God. So let's read. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to, who, to her. You are the God who sees me, or you are El Roy. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'ir Lachai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to give some thoughts on this text, a difficult text, a text that uh, is a ready-made script for a modern-day soap opera, isn't it? I mean, if this is, you could scarcely do better than just, you know, taking it for, oh, well, that's a good, that's, this, this plays well, you know, this is, well, there's a lot of human intrigue in this, you know. You don't have to look far in the Bible to find strange family dynamics. They're everywhere, okay? But here's some thoughts on the text. If you remember some weeks ago when we're going through Genesis, talked about how God gave the covenant to Noah and put his rainbow in the clouds as an everlasting sign that he was never going to eradicate all of the human population again because of their wickedness. But what that meant was that from that point on, God was constraining himself to work with the people that he had, to work with what was in his hands, for good or for ill, fallen, broken, messed up people, God said, the covenant that I'm going to make with this world is going to have to come about in and through and with them. And so God is doubling down on the human race. He's not abandoning it. He's saying, you know, this is going to take a while. This is going to be a little more challenging. I'm going to have to work through these knuckle-headed people of mine, and I'm going to have to make something happen for them. And today is sort of a knuckle-headed people chapter in Genesis, is Abram, at one, Abram and Sarai at one of their lower points, all of humanity. And yet God, we're going to see, is going to continue to work through these knuckle-headed people. So God is, God is committed to working through humans. And one thing that's interesting that we might want to remember is that God made a promise to Abram that he would have numerous uncountable descendants. If you look back in there, nowhere until after this, nowhere does God make that promise to Sarai. He makes the promise to Abram. Whether it's made to her or not, we don't know. It's just not in the text there that it's made to Sarai. And so Sarai assumes, I guess, that the covenant is for Abram. And so she does something that we probably find a little questionable. She has a servant that they probably acquired when they were sojourning in Egypt, and they left Egypt with some wealth because of their deception of Pharaoh and his household. 
And so it's possible that Hagar joined their caravan as they left uh, Egypt. Not of her own free will. She was either given to them or bought by them. She was a slave. And so Sarai says to her husband, evidently God is not going to make this promise come, through, come true through me. But yet the promise has to come true somehow. So perhaps God wants us to make it come true through this other person, Hagar. And so she gives her slave girl, or her handmaiden, or her maidservant, however you want to say it, she gives Hagar to Abram and says, whatever children that she has will be my children. Whatever children she has will be basically Abram and Sarai's children. This is not an uncommon practice in the ancient Near East. There's evidence for this in other writings. There's evidence for this in other cultures of that time. This was a culturally normal thing for Sarai to do. She shouldn't be faulted for taking some initiative. She shouldn't be faulted even for um, picking up on her cultural norms and trying to start a family with a sort of a surrogate mother in the mix. That was all completely normal. But as we see, it didn't go very well, did it? And, and these were people who were advanced in years, right? You'd think that they would know better. Does anyone here think that they would like know better? Like this is not a this is just not a good idea. It may even a culturally okay thing doesn't make it a good idea. All right, that's a that's an important distinction for us. It was okay to do culturally. Even she could be commended, Sarah could be commended for her initiative because she realizes that God wants to work through all these different means and yet this was a mistake and it was a mistake on all sorts of levels. Did they not see this coming that once Hagar was pregnant, that she would realize that her position in the family had elevated so much that she could lord it over her mistress? And so the tension between these two women escalated so much that that happened. And, and it gets worse, as we'll, as we'll see. Um, so what happens next is this incredible echo of Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3? The serpent speaks to Eve, and she gets persuaded to eat the fruit, and then she just hands some to her husband, who is dumbly standing by and just consents to it. And then when it all unravels again, God kind of asks, how did this happen? And, and Adam says, well, the woman you gave me, you know, he, he kind of passed the buck to, to Eve. Well, the same thing happens here. Like, human nature is always the same. So Hagar says to her, or Sarai says to her husband Abram, why don't you sleep with my, my maidservant? No argument there. No like, well, honey, I think that's a bad idea. Well, this could really change the dynamics of our family. I don't think that, he doesn't say anything. It's, he's silent. And then when problems start coming, when the women are fighting with each other and, and one is despising the other, then Sarai comes back to Abram and says, this is your fault. You have to do something about this. She's despising me. She's lording this over me. And Abram, Abram at that moment, needed to take responsibility for his decision. Because he made a decision. Whether he assented to it verbally or not, he made a decision. He followed through on it. That's obvious, right? He needed to take responsibility in this moment and say... I had a hand in the family dynamics that we find ourselves in now, and now I need to do something to bring peace to my family. I have to take responsibility for this. 
But does he do that? He does not. He says, and, and the interplay is great, you know. Sarai says, I put this woman in your arms. And Abram says, I'm putting her back in your hands. So it's kind of this sort of mirror image. He's like, just leave me out of this. Whatever, you know, whatever. You guys, you guys just work it out. I don't want to be bothered with it. I mean, there's a great cartoon uh, strip I should bring it sometime, where the dad is sitting there and the two kids come up and says, and the kids say, Dad, you have to help us. So-and-so is hurting me and I'm hurting them. And we're going to have to, you know, and, and, and the dad says, what do you want me to do? And they say, you have to pick. And, and he says, well, which, which solution has the least amount of drama? That's the one I'll go with, you know. And that's what Abraham's doing, Abram's doing here. Whatever has the least drama for me, is, that's between you all. And so he almost tacitly gives permission for Sarah to start abusing Hagar. This is kind of a messed up family, right? We have some real problems here. And so uh, this family is devolving pretty quickly into a, a big mess. But I want to talk about Hagar because there's, there's some footnotes here that we really need to pay attention to. We're going to talk about Hagar. As I mentioned, she was probably acquired by them in Egypt. And so if she was a slave girl there and she was in the household of somebody else, perhaps the pharaoh... That meant that she herself had no land and no property and no husband or family that would protect her from that kind of life. Either that or they were all slaves to either she was an orphan or an illegitimate child of somebody and was left out. Or, or her whole family were slaves too and they had no say over what happened to her. And so they had to say goodbye to her one day. Abram and Sarai came into town. They scooped her up and they took her away. And the rest of her family said Goodbye, we'll never see you again, most likely. So she passed from ownership of someone in Egypt into the ownership of Sarai and Abram. The other thing you'll notice, if you look at your, at your text in, in Genesis 16, is that uh, Hagar is given a name, but at the beginning of this reading, only by the narrator, only by the narrator of this story, is Hagar named. When Sarai and Abram talk about Hagar. They never use her actual name. You can check that. They sing things like her and she and their relational position of authority over her, my slave, my maidservant, my handmaiden. So they talk about her as a property, but they never give her the dignity of personhood by calling her by her name to her face. Or even when they're talking about her, to each other. The Bible, this is, not a, this is not an accident. The Bible is really making a point here. Is that what's going wrong from the outset here is they're not treating this person like a human being. They're treating her like an object. And they're using her like an object to bring about what they think needs to happen. And they're not in tune with God, what God ultimately wants to happen in this family. So we need to take that even further. Here's a nameless and powerless person. And I don't think, the Bible's silent on this, but I can hardly imagine that Hagar consented to this arrangement. I'm going to say that again. I don't think, and this is me speaking, I don't think Hagar consented to this arrangement. Can you imagine Sarai saying, Hagar, go get in the tent? You think Hagar said, oh, this is my big chance. This is going to be great. I don't think so. This is how the world was. When your property 
This may become expected of you at some point. And so she had no control over her freedom to go wherever she wants. She couldn't leave this caravan. She couldn't go back to Egypt. She had no power over her own body, her own sexual expression. She had no power over her own reproductive system. She was being used by these two other people to produce a child that they were going to claim as their own. So she was a slave. She was property. And this is a problem. Again, I think it's great. Not that's, that part of the story is not great, but what I want to say is great is this is the sort of thing that illustrates just how true the Bible is. Because we see here, captured in this moment, the crazy dysfunctional family dynamics, the predation of one people on top of another that uses them as property and, and for their own sexual fulfillment, all that's so true to life, and the Bible never flinches from any of it. The Bible describes it in the frankest terms. The Bible is a document that's true to actual life. And so when we hold it and we read it, it's not pie-in-the-sky fairy tale stuff. It's about real people who make real mistakes and end up in real fits and messes with themselves and with their families. What makes the Bible, and plenty of other literature does that, and so that literature is to be commended, but only the Bible then weaves a thread of redemption through these broken human stories. And the Bible does here too. God has to do a lot of digging to dig this family out of the mess that it's in. The other thing that's, that shows up quite clearly, and this happens over and over again, is that even an oppressed person can become an oppressor. Hagar turns the table on Sarai. She has one thing now that she has over Sarai, and she plays it to the hilt. I have a child coming, and you never will. And so she lords it over her, and then Sarai turns the table again. Pleads with Abram. Abram just doesn't take any responsibility and says, go ahead and beat up your servant. I don't care. This just don't bother me with it. Leave me out of this equation. But you can't stay out of that equation. This equation has Abram in it, and it's going to have Abram in it for the rest of his life. These are mis mistakes and decisions that they made that they can't just vanish away from. And God never lets them off the hook from it either. But he works through it. He continues to covenant through it. So, again, Sarai asks that God judge the situation. This is a really st stern language that she gives her husband. May God judge between you and between me. Well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> If you ask God to do that, he will come, and he will judge, and he does. And, and actually what he judges is that, you know what? What you did was a mistake, but I'm going to bless that mistake for Hagar and her son. This will not be a blessing for you all, but it will be a blessing for them. I'm going to be true to them. Your time will come. I'll still be true to you. But this mistake that you made has legs. It's going to keep on walking. It's going to keep on walking and talking and growing and if we understand the world as it is today, it's still walking, and it's still talking, and it's still an issue, for all, for, and it will be for, the, for my lifetime, I'm certain. So, here's what happens. God enters into this with judgment and with mercy. And the first thing he does before he deals with Abram and Sarai is he goes looking for Hagar. Now, go ahead and turn uh, to uh, verse 8 or verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar. She fled. She ran away. 
She was tired of the abuse. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, what do you all notice? What's the first thing that the angel of the Lord says to Hagar? Her name. The first word out of God's mouth to this person who's been beset, who's been trafficked by other people, who's never been named by them and never been given the dignity of the name, the first thing that God's angel says to her is her name. This is sending shivers down my spine right now. I hope you can't feel it, but I can feel it, right? It's amazing. What a contrast. This is the God who sees Hagar as a human being, and he says her name. First word, Hagar. Hagar, servant of Sarai, but then again, who are you? You're the servant of Sarai. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away. Well, then you have to go back. And I'm going to help you with this situation. So the first time somebody acknowledges her humanity, for the first time someone calls her by name, for the first time somebody cares about her problems, and it's God that does it. It's the Lord. So what happens next? God tells her to go back. Stop despising Sarai, but it says to submit to Sarai because you're her servant and to stay in the family. Why? Because I'm about to tell you, the Lord says. I'm about to tell you why this is still going to work out for you, even though you look like you're at the end of your rope. He then makes a covenant with Hagar. I hope that strikes you as odd. God doesn't make covenant with women very often in the Bible. He makes covenant with men. God doesn't make covenant with slaves very often in the Bible. God doesn't make covenant with Gentiles very often in the Bible. Here's a woman who's a slave, a woman, and a Gentile. Not part of Abraham's family, Abram's family. But yet God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you because I hear what you're doing, what, what has happened to you, and I see what you're experiencing. And this is what he says. I'm going to make a great nation out of your son Ishmael. By the way, you're going to name him Ishmael. And you're, he's going to be born... And his descendants are going to be countless. There's going to be so many of them that they can't be counted. And there's also some troubling words about Ishmael and his descendants. He's going to be wild. He's going to be out there. He's not going to get along with his brothers. He's not going to get along with the nations that he rubs shoulders with. Now, just as an aside, and whether this is, whether this is genetically or linguistically or ethnologically true or not, I do not know. But the, Isla the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, traces its heritage to Abram through Ishmael. And at least as far as I can see right now, this is a prophecy that's coming true in this world right now. I don't see too many countries that are Islamic or too many people groups that are Islamic that are getting along well with their neighbors. Uh, I don't think that's happening in India. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of nods here. It's not happening in a lot of places. I mean, there may, they're certainly happening in some places. There are moderate sort of pockets of Islam. But this is a prophecy that seems to be current right now. Whether, it's, whether Muslims actually trace their, uh, can actually trace their heritage to Ishmael, I don't know. But this seems to be true. And, and it raises an interesting question for us. God made a covenant with Ishmael. God made a covenant with Hagar. What part do we have, I hope a large part, in bringing that covenant to fruition in the same way that God's covenant with Abraham was brought into fruition 
through Jesus Christ? I think the answer is that Islam has yet to meet the Savior. Islam has yet to meet Jesus. Islam has yet to understand whom they call the prophet Jesus as actually the Messiah Jesus. And that's work that's ahead of us. And there's going to be a lot of, of jostling at the seams until that happens. And it may, like I said, I don't think it'll be in my lifetime. It's going to be a generational issue that Christendom and the world is going to have to face over the next several hundred years is my guess. Doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It just means that we haven't seen it yet. It doesn't mean that God can't make it happen because he just tells us to wait. He tells Abram and Sarah to wait another 13 years before Isaac comes along. So we can wait for it. We can look forward to it with anticipation, but I'm not going to hold out hope that I'm going to see much progress on that in my lifetime unless, you know, God is good. God is good. God may bring about some massive change in this world, and praise the Lord if he does. I would love to see it. That's an aside. What's amazing about this is that here is a woman who's been trafficked, who's been used for her reproductive ability, who's been taken advantage of by her owners, and whose existence in this family has so changed the family dynamics that it's become a very dysfunctional family. And God doesn't look at that mess and say, forget you all, I'm starting over with somebody else, I'm starting over with a family that's not so messed up. God doesn't do that. God says, you know what? My covenant is still for you, Abram and Sarai, but it's also, still, it's also for you, Hagar and your son Ishmael. I'm going to redeem this mistake. I'm going to redeem this mistake. I'm going to keep working with the people that I've got because I've got nothing else and because I love you and my power will win out in the end. It's just going to keep getting delayed by your mistakes, but yet it's going to happen. And that's the good news. I want to say that's the good news for us. It's amazing. One little note, you see here that, and I mentioned this about naming in the Old Testament, Hagar actually names God. If you read a different, different translation, and I alluded to that, she calls God El Roy, the God who sees. And she, na she names the spring Be'ir Lahai Roy, the, God, the, 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 the spring of the living God who sees me, is how you would translate that. And as I said... This is strange. Nowhere else in Scripture does God allow himself to be named by anyone, let alone a woman, a Gentile, and a slave. No one gets to name God. God always does the naming, or God delegates the naming to somebody else, but still God is prior. God allows himself to be named. Is it possible that God is limiting his own power and his own prestige in this situation to be in relationship with somebody who is oppressed? Maybe. I think so. She names God, and God doesn't object. God does not object to her naming of him. In fact, he seems to appreciate it to, to me. And so this is just another sign that God really is on the side of the least and the lowest and the powerless and the trafficked and the ones who have been hurt and abused in this world. But he's on everybody's side, too. He's on uh, Sarai and Abram's side, they're the ones with the privilege in this situation. He's on their side, too. He's going to work through all of these people. I want to take one tiny moment just to think about what we call human trafficking now. It's the trade of people. The trade of people in this world, and it's happening all over this world. It's happening a mile from here this morning. There's no doubt that it's happening everywhere in this world. 
Hagar was a trafficked person. She was trafficked from Egypt to Canaan. She had no freedom of movement. She had no freedom over her body. She was coerced into Abram's bed. And I think today's text, among other things, should remind us of the plight of trafficked persons all around the world. Like I said, even within a few miles of here at this moment. And we have to say, we have to say this clearly, and I think we should say it in the church, that there are boys and girls, though mostly girls, some as young as 12 or 13, or God forbid even younger, who are controlled by other people and sold for the pleasure of another person. And I think we have this fairy tale view of this trade, a little bit like that movie Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts, remember that? Where you can kind of be happy in this lifestyle? Forget that. That is a lie. Don't watch that movie. <laughs> just boycott the movie. It's not showing anymore, but just don't buy it. Don't watch it. Um, a trafficked person does not get to choose whom they service. They don't get to keep most of the money from the transaction. In almost all cases, almost all cases, like 99.9%, this is not what it looks like at all. What it most looks like now is slavery. One person owning another. Usually a man who coerces a woman or a girl by, or a group of them by threat of violence they coerce a trafficked person to do whatever he tells them to do with whomever he tells them to do it, and he keeps all the money. And they, they do this nonstop until somebody dies. So in that sense, the person who pays, and I think we need to say this too, a person who pays for a trafficked person is committing sexual assault because that person does not have consent in that situation. They do not consent to this arrangement. They are being forced into it. And so the person who pays for it is committing sexual assault. And the, and the funny thing about our society is that we've criminalized the trafficked person, but not so much the person who pays for it, which is strange. It's backwards, because the trafficked person in almost all cases has no choice in this. They're being kept there by threat of violence or by the use of drugs or all sorts of things. But it's the, it's the person who uses those services who has a choice. And the, the, the consequences for them are not as severe. I think that's beginning to change, though. There has been some recent laws addressing that in California. And I, I think we need to look at it that way. This is a horrible business. You hear about it at the Super Bowl every year. In the Super Bowl, they're starting to advertise that this is a problem and is trying to cut down on this problem. It's a horrible business all around this world. It's in our neighborhood. It's everywhere. The Bible knows all about this. It talks about it both here. There's echoes of it in this scripture, and there's other places in the Bible where it talks about this. The Bible is true to life. It, it understands the plight of trafficked people, and God speaks to and for and on behalf of and makes covenant with a trafficked person. That's amazing. That's amazing. Here's what I want you to take away this morning. God appears when there's a need. There's a problem in this family. Hagar runs away. God shows up. He doesn't take away all the consequences of the dysfunction that this family, he doesn't erase, he doesn't rewind. He's like, well, this is the new reality we're in. I'm going to have to bless this side of the family. I'm going to have to bless this side of the family. You have to go back to your, your mistress, and you have to live under her until such time as something else changes. So God brings the family back together, but not without consequences, not without his judgment on the situation, but also his blessing into the situation that he can redeem even these broken things like families and people. 
God cares about the weak. He cares about the outsider. He knows us, and he calls us by name. His first word to us is our name, no matter how low we feel. And in this story, we find that at times, we're kind of like Abram and Sarai. We're the ones that have the power, and we make poor decisions, and we have to live with the consequences. But sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like Hagar. We're at the end of ourselves. We cry out to God, and God can call, come and find us and save us and redeem us and covenant with us. God works in and among broken people to bring about his purposes for the entire world. He redeems us. He rescues us. He sees us. He hears us. He makes covenant with us. And the covenant finally is in his son, Jesus Christ, that no matter how many mistakes we make, God will give us new life. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servants. Thank you even for their mistakes that you're able to redeem. Redeem us through our mistakes and our lives. And be with us as you bring about your purposes for the world in and through and with us. Amen.